Support for the Florida Roundup comes from ABC Fine Wine and Spirits, family-owned and operated since 1936. Guests can shop any of ABC's 125 Florida stores and get curbside service through abcfws.com. Welcome to the Florida Roundup, and thanks for listening. I'm Melissa Ross in Jacksonville. Well, Governor Ron DeSantis is on the defensive this week about voter fraud charges brought by his administration. Even the Republican lawmaker who drafted legislation at the center of this debate says the charges are misplaced. Now, here's the issue. Several people who were arrested last week as part of the governor's voter fraud crackdown were actually notified by official government entities that they were eligible to vote. That according to court documents and interviews. The defendants told authorities they had no intention of committing voter fraud, according to affidavits, and in some cases they were baffled by their arrests because counties had actually sent them voter registration cards and approved them to vote. Meanwhile, voting rights groups are highly critical of the state's creation of a new state elections investigation office and the governor's decision to arrest 20 people in this crackdown. I spoke with reporter Matt Dixon of Politico about the story. Here's that conversation. Matt Dixon, good to talk to you. Thanks for joining us. So let's go back to the beginning of this. Governor DeSantis announced a voter fraud crackdown and said 20 felons around the state, he said, were ineligible to vote, were being charged with fraud. Uh, take us back to that announcement and, and and why he focused in particular on large urban Florida counties. Yeah, it's like so many things begin with Governor DeSantis. It was a, a sp- sort of a splashy press conference in, in Broward County, and this was sort of the, the first concrete evidence that the governor's new office of, of election investigations, which is a brand new office, was bearing fruit. Uh, these these twenty felons, he said, were the result of the office's, you know, extensive investigation. Um, their arrests were made in, in five different counties. Uh, the idea being that these were felons who voted ineligibly. Uh, the Amendment Four in, in Florida uh, allowed felons allows felons to get their voting rights back, but there are certain you know really nasty crimes like murder, felony sexual assault, where they that isn't the case. So these folks were not eligible to get their rights back, and they voted ineligibly. Uh, Governor DeSantis and, and FDLE arrested them, but um, and it all started in Broward County with, with that press conference you referenced. Then, as you discovered, though, some of these people who were arrested had been told by official government entities, like their county supervisor of elections office, that they were eligible to vote. They even got voter registration cards in the mail. How did all yeah, of that I, come together? Yeah, I think likely we don't have all 20 of 20, of 20 but I think very likely all 20 registered to vote. And the way that process works is the initial check is at the county level with a, a local supervisor of elections. But those supervisors don't have access to law enforcement databases that the state uses for a much more thorough check to check eligibility and if someone is an ineligible felon. So very likely what happened in, in, in the as this process plays out, it, it looks like did happen is these folks registered. Um, some of them, we interviewed uh, an attorney who represents a client who, who registered a, a Walmart registration drive, so things like that. The registration application went to the, the local level, and then it went up to the Department of State, which administers elections, and somehow slipped through the cracks, didn't get flagged as a felon. And so the Department of State never informed county elections officials that these people need to be removed from the voter rolls. They're not allowed on the voter rolls. And as a result of of that miscommunication, these folks were sent voter cards, which they saw as sort of an official signal that they were allowed to go and vote. You followed up with more reporting, uh, finding that the governor tried to blame local election supervisors for these kinds of mistakes but his new state election investigation chief had already told those local officials they they hadn't done anything wrong. 
Yeah, in, in response to a lot of this, the governor and his office have repeatedly said that this is an issue with, with local supervisor of elections. They didn't check enough. And he's even said yesterday that he had heard, quote, reports of, of them encouraging felons to vote, which if you hear that, there, there's there's no information to, to back up those claims. Um, and, and in fact, in an August 18th letter right around, it was either the day after the day after the press conference we just talked about, Pete Antonacci, who, who is a, a DeSantis-appointed head of the state elections office, the state elections investigation office, had sent letters to all 67 supervisors. Essentially, the purpose of the letter was to ask them to retain records related to the 2000, their 2020 election as they do their investigation. But in that letter, he said in, in very clear terms that it was no fault of, of local elections officials. It was, it was outlined in that letter. So the governor's messaging uh, pointing to local elections officials as opposed to his administration screwing up doesn't really sort of live up to scrutiny when you, you know, look at the, the words of his own uh, elections investigation chief. Now, going deeper, Matt, the governor made this announcement to tout his newly formed Office of Election Crimes Security targeting 20 people, as we said, convicted of felonies, he said, illegally voted. Uh, Two things here. One, uh, Florida voters overwhelmingly approved Amendment 4, which would give people who had been convicted of a felony the right to vote once again. The legislature then threw up some barriers to the, the passage of that amendment. But, you know, not only that, the election in Florida in 2020 was well run. Uh, the bipartisan group of supervisors of elections around the state have repeatedly stated that we had a very clean, free and fair election in Florida. Former President Donald Trump continues to make baseless claims that the 2020 election was stolen, and Governor DeSantis has refused to state publicly whether he agrees with those false claims. So why does Florida need an office of election crimes when voter fraud is not a problem here and we don't have issues with our elections? Because since the 2000 election, this state has worked really hard to make sure that ballots are counted cleanly and fairly. Yeah, on the amendment forefront, it's very likely that that a lot of the twenty probably wouldn't apply other uh, apply anyway. The folks like murderers and and, and those convicted mm-hmm. of like fel- felony sexual assault, amendment four doesn't apply to them. So there are some felons who don't have a pathway back. But it did actually prompt some confusion. Um, the the one attorney that we interviewed, who's representing someone who was arrested, said his client actually told those who were trying to register him that he's a felon and he can't. And the people, the volunteers working at the voter registration booth told him Amendment 4 exists, and they wrongly informed him that because Amendment 4 exists, you can actually register. So Amendment 4 has has created some confusion in this Mm -hmm. space, even though most of the 20 may not have applied. As far as elections being run well, uh, Governor DeSantis has, has acknowledged that. He said it in the press conference earlier this month when he announced these arrests. But it's an interesting, he's trying to kind of walk up a political tightrope um, in the sense that Trump supporters and, and President Trump himself has asked states to do things like audit elections. And, and Trump won here by, you know, over three points. Uh, Florida had a very clean election. So um, Governor DeSantis hasn't gone that far to take steps like have happened in, in other states like Arizona and Wisconsin as far as auditing elections. But he has championed sort of, uh, you know, election overhaul bills which included in the 2022 legislative session and included this office that we're talking about. So he has, you know, sent signals to, to Trump supporters who, you know, want to, you know, make false claims about the 2020 election that he's kind of with them, but hasn't gone as far as, as, as some other governors. With all of that said, there's now a legal defense fund being set up for these 20 people. Can you tell us a little bit more about what voting rights advocates and others are doing as this controversy has sort of grown through the week and there has been increasing scrutiny of this move by the governor's office. 
Yep, there's, there's both a legal defense fund and a bail fund. Um, uh, advocates did not want anyone to, to take plea deals because they couldn't get out of jail or, or they couldn't afford attorneys. And there, there's also, I, I should say, there's two separate things. There's the pots of money for bail and legal defense. And then there's groups who are actively going to find attorneys to, to represent these 20 people so they don't necessarily have to rely on, on overworked public defenders and they can start to get a, a you know more robust, well-focused legal defense. So there are, are organizations out there that are, are trying to, to, to help these folks financially and, and legally. And what about other criticism of the crackdown uh, accusations some have made, like the director of the Florida Rights Restoration Coalition, which led that drive to pass amendment for, they've accused Governor DeSantis of pushing questionable fraud prosecutions to scare eligible voters away from casting ballots in November. What about that accusation? Yeah, I, I think there are certainly people who believe that, and, and they point to the fact that, that, that this big, splashy press conference, when governor's, uh, Governor DeSantis did it, excuse me, he was flanked by, gosh, 15 or 20 law enforcement agents, and there was sort of a big show of force, um, very disparaging language used by the people who were, to, towards the people who were arrested. Um, he, he amplified in that press conference that these are third-degree felonies, um, they could face five years in jail, $5,000 fines. So I think that sort of big, bold messaging um, from the governor's office is definitely being interpreted by, by some groups as, as a, you know, a, a glaring signal that you know, people should be leery or, or question their votes, uh, question whether they should vote. And, and that's, I think, where a lot of this is stemming from. Matt Dixon of Politico, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Well, two U.S. House incumbents are vying to represent more than a dozen North Florida counties in Congress. Tallahassee Democrat Al Lawson and Panama City Republican Neil Dunn were placed in the same district after Governor DeSantis signed into law a new congressional map that eliminated Lawson's district. It had been an African-American opportunity seat. W. FSU's Valerie Crowder recently sat down with each candidate to talk about issues facing the district. Here's her conversation with Dunn. Congressman Dunn, my first question has two parts. You were elected to represent District 2 in 2016. You've served in the U.S. Congress for nearly six years. Mm -hmm. First, what do you consider are your biggest accomplishments and what lessons have you learned during your time in office? Wow. Well, the second question is a big one. Let's start with the easier one. I I think that the biggest accomplishments would have to center around the recovery from Hurricane Michael. You know, nobody ever runs for Congress to become a disaster expert. But once it happens to you, you know, you've got no choice. And uh, so uh, when when that hurricane hit, uh, I dove in, my staff dove in with a vengeance, and uh, we rescued a lot of businesses and Tyndall Air Force Base and, of course, uh, some of the major agricultural uh, concerns in the district. Uh, we, we had uh, – part of that disaster was the biggest forestry disaster literally in the history of the country. And uh, so we took some some new and inventive uh, legislation to help foresters get out of that hole. And I'm very proud of uh, the work we did with uh, agriculture as well as the military. Great. And that kind of leads into the second question, which is what lessons have you learned during your time in office? <laughs> There's a lot of those. Uh, but uh, honestly, uh, I think one of the things that you find is that there really are a whole bunch of good people uh, in Washington. They're not all you know, ideal. Uh, I would say we have our fair share of knuckleheads, but we also have good people on both sides of the aisle. And uh, We've been able to actually work together for the first four years I was up there. I think I thought quite uh, quite productively. The last two have gotten a little bogged down in divisiveness, uh, but uh, we we learn a lot about how Washington works and and also how to take care of constituents on a one by one basis, which is a gratifying thing to do on a day to day basis. You, you you can't always help everybody, but if you can help one family, two families. That's a that's a big deal to those families. And many families across America and across the district are struggling right now. Housing, food, and gas prices have gone up across the U.S. And you voted against the Inflation Reduction Act. Could you explain your vote? Yeah, easily. And 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 what do you think lawmakers in Washington should do to address this issue? So the Inflation Reduction Act was anything but 
inflation reducing. It was literally hundreds of billions of dollars that is going to be highly inflationary. Uh, it doesn't even address in a near term any of the costs. Uh, so a lot of it's put off until 25 and 26. But but the, the things that you see, they're, they're increasing taxes on a large portion of America in the middle of a recession. We are in a recession. Increasing taxes in a recession is simply, you know, verboten. You really should not do that. And what do you think lawmakers in Washington should do to address inflation? Well, the first thing we can do is adjust the structural problems with energy costs. Energy costs are driving a huge portion of the problems that we see across the world. So not only is it driving the cost of fertilizer to three times what it was one year ago, which drives up the cost of everybody's groceries, and of course the price of everybody's transportation and gas. But the reason we have a war raging in Europe right now is because of energy. Russia simply could not have attacked Ukraine if the EU were not dependent upon Russia for its energy. House District 2 covers many rural areas where agriculture is a dominant industry. It also includes more than a couple hundred miles of coastline and covers many natural springs and waterways. What would you do to protect those resources if you're reelected to represent the district? So one of the things I like to say is, you know, nobody's a better steward of the land than the farmers. And uh, unfortunately, they kind of get vilified in the course of this because they really do do a wonderful job taking care of the land and the water. They care about clean water, believe me, every bit as much as anybody who focuses on the environment wholly and not on agriculture. So uh, that's that's an easy one uh, that uh, we should not exclude the farmers from this. And they feel like they're getting marginalized. I talk to them all the time. This is the single most agricultural district in the state of Florida, congressional district. And it is our number one economic driver, not state government, not tourism, not even the military. It's agriculture. And we should remember that, you know, they've been keeping this land you know, clean for us for 200 years. And uh, so we've, we've vilified all fossil fuels. Well, let's get rid of the coal, but let's don't get rid of the natural gas until we've got something to replace it. And we, you know, a base load of electricity and energy fundamentally still requires clean natural gas. We just don't have a good replacement for that. You can't use a, a, something like solar or wind, which are intermittent sources of, of base energy, rather than consistent. We need a reliable, when you flip on the light switch, it's got to come on. Another issue that's important to many voters is access to safe and legal abortions. What role do you think the federal government should play when it comes to abortion access? Do you think the federal government should provide any sort of checks on state laws? So it's it's this is a very timely question. You know, of course, the Supreme Court just overturned Roe v. Wade, but it's important to re- realize what they did with that. What they did is they put it back on the states and say, you know, this is not a con- constitutionally, this is not a federal place to play. I mean, it's just not the federal law that we have to uh, we have to play with. Now, I'm I'm basically pro-life completely. So I'm pro-life and and there's people who are pro-choice and you're entitled to your opinion. But that should be fought out in these states and not in Washington, D.C. Mass shootings are a frequent occurrence in the United States. That's not the only gun violence that we see. We also see domestic violence, uh, neighborhood crime violence, What do you think Congress should do to address gun violence in America? So we have a thing called the Second Amendment. I'm a big believer in that. Uh, And we have a process for amending the Constitution. If if people want to get rid of the Second Amendment, I think that they should be forthright and say, okay, we want to start an amendment process. Now, the reason you don't see anybody doing that is because they know it wouldn't win. It absolutely just has no chance. And so what we see people doing is kind of cheating around the edges, trying to rein in gun rights. I will say this. I spent a long time in the military, a lot of time overseas. Most of the most dangerous places I've been in my life had very, very, very strict gun laws. Well, later in the hour, the Artemis One mission to the moon got scrubbed this week, but NASA says it'll try again this weekend. And up next, a closer look at Carla Hernandez-Matz, the teacher's union head tapped by Charlie Crist to be his running mate. You're listening to the Florida Roundup from Florida Public Radio. We'll be right back. 
Hurricanes, lightning, flooding, and tornadoes affect the entire state of Florida. And the team of meteorologists from the Florida Public Radio Emergency Network keep you informed around the clock. All year long, we're committed to providing in-depth weather coverage, both over the radio and on the mobile app Florida Storms. The Florida Public Radio Emergency Network is supported by this station and Citizens Property Insurance, online at citizensfla.com. Taxes, the environment, energy, education, health care, a state that's gaining nearly a thousand new residents every day and the ongoing quest for resources to meet that growing need. These are critical issues that affect everyone in Florida, and they're just some of the issues we follow every week on Capital Report. It's your direct connection to what's going on in Tallahassee and what it means to you. Tonight at 6.30 on WGCT News 89.9. Join us for Resilience on Our Rivers. A panel of local officials and subject matter experts will discuss the biggest threats facing our rivers, what's being done to protect them, and how you can help. Join ADAPT, the GTM Research Reserve, and the Northeast Florida Regional Council at WJCT Studios the evening of Wednesday, September 14th. Register for free at wjct.org events. Support for the Florida Roundup comes from ABC Fine Wine and Spirits, Florida family-owned and operated since 1936, and a proud supporter of public radio. ABC Fine Wine and Spirits. Always be celebrating. Welcome back to the Florida Roundup. I'm Melissa Ross in Jacksonville. Well, this week, Charlie Crist announced he's leaving Congress as the race for Florida governor heats up. Current Governor Ron DeSantis faced the same decision about when to resign from Congress. This was back in 2018 when he himself was running for governor. Like Christ, he waited until after he got his party's nomination in the gubernatorial race to step down from his congressional seat. Now, Christ has represented Florida's 13th congressional district since 2016. That's the St. Petersburg-Clearwater area. And he continued to serve in Congress throughout his primary campaign against Agriculture Commissioner Nikki Freed. Once Christ won that primary, he picked an educator to serve as his running mate. Carla Hernandez-Matz is the head of the teachers' union in Miami-Dade County. It's a clear sign Christ intends to put education issues at the center of his campaign to try to unseat DeSantis. I spoke with Andrew Spar, president of the Florida Education Association, about Christ's choice of Fernandez and the politics of education in Florida. Here's that conversation. Why is Carla Hernandez a good choice, in your view, to serve as Charlie Christ's running mate? Absolutely. We all know that the situation facing our public schools in Florida is dire. Uh, One of the worst teacher and staff shortages, in fact, the worst teacher and staff shortage uh, we've ever seen here in the state. Um, A couple of weeks before the school year started, we had 8,000 teacher vacancies, nearly 6,000 support staff vacancies. uh, And teachers really feel like they're under attack in the state of Florida. And that's why so many have walked away from the profession. So the idea that that's contrasted with someone running for governor who's decided to put a teacher, a special education teacher, on the ticket with them, a mother of two public school students, someone who is connected to the community, who has advocated for our public schools, who understands what it takes to make sure that every child gets that education they deserve and need, uh, really is a game changer for uh, for those of us in the public education space. Having a parent of public education students and having a teacher who really understands the system from both vantage points, I think is so important when our schools are facing such a, a dire crisis. Carla Hernandez is head of the largest teachers union, not just in Florida, but in the Southeast. And Charlie Christ has said he picked her purposefully. He thinks she will be a partner in his words to embody the caring and empathy for kids and teachers that he argues Governor DeSantis is lacking. I want to ask you, Andrew, uh, the Republican Party of Florida called appointing Hernandez to be the state's potential next lieutenant governor is a slap in the face to Florida's parents. What's your response to Republicans who think this pick is demonstrating a lack of awareness with where some of the voters in the state are? 
when it comes to education? So there has been this narrative that the governor and other extremists have put out there that somehow parents aren't included in the public school system. Uh, as I pointed out, Ms. Hernandez is a parent. I'm a parent. There are lots of parents listening today, and we all know that's not true. We know that the public schools are parents, teachers, staff, administrators, and community all working together to educate every child. We know that as parents, we go to open house at the beginning of the year, meet our child's teachers. Uh, we get an opportunity to exchange emails and phone numbers. We hear what they're going to be doing throughout the year. Um, I'm sure Ms. Hernandez, like I as a teacher, have sat in many faculty meetings, PTA meetings, school advisory council meetings, talking about how can we get parents more engaged, more connected to our schools. So the false narrative that's being perpetrated uh, by some in, in, the, in the extremist world is just simply not true. What we should be talking about both Republicans and Democrats, everyone in the state, is how do we strengthen that sacred bond between parents and teachers, between families and schools, and how do we make sure we're focused, laser-focused, on what every child needs, regardless of race, background, zip code, or ability. Can you explain a little bit about how both Chris and Fernandez will talk about this plan they call Freedom to Learn? What is the Freedom to Learn plan? Absolutely. So the Freedom to Learn plan is based on this premise that, one, we have to have fully staffed schools. Like for kids to learn, there have to be bus drivers getting them to school on time. There have to be teachers in the classroom who are highly trained, well-supported, fully credentialed. And so that's what the Freedom to Learn is first and foremost based on. It also talks about expanding the instruction, the learning opportunities for kids, investing kids, investing in uh, career and technical education programs, high-quality career and tech ed programs. Interestingly enough, the graduation rates among kids who go through high-quality career and tech programs is off the charts. And, and the number of them that go on to colleges or universities to work in a specific trade or industry is extremely high. There's a correlation between meeting the needs of the business community and these high, uh, high skill areas in career and tech education. So those are some of the premises, looking at teacher pay, looking at funding, looking at making sure we have stronger connections between family and, and school. Those are the kinds of things that are in that Freedom to Learn program. That was Andrew Sparr, president of the FEA. Well, NASA had to scrub its first attempt to launch its space launch system rocket Monday as part of the Artemis One mission to the moon. But NASA will give it another go tomorrow during a two-hour launch window. It begins at 2.17 p.m. Now, Monday's launch was called off after engineers encountered a temperature problem with one of the booster's core stage engines this as the rocket was being loaded with propellant. I recently spoke with WMFE's Brendan Byrne about the significance of the Artemis One mission and plans to return to the moon. Hey, Brendan, good to talk to you about space. Um, thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate you dropping by. So tell us about Artemis and, and what, what makes this launch so special. So Artemis is NASA's next moonshot. This is the next chapter of lunar exploration. Um, in Greek mythology, Artemis was the twin sister of Apollo, um, and in a sense these are similar missions but also very different. Um, we're returning to the moon for the first time since the 1960s and 1970s, uh, but we're going to different places. And the mission that, that's launching Artemis One is the first in this kind of increasingly complex cadence of missions that's going to pave the way for astronauts. So there's, there's no crew on this mission, but it's a critical test of, of the SLS rocket. This is a brand-new rocket designed by NASA. has 8.8 .8 million pounds of thrust, so the largest and most powerful rocket the agency has ever created. Um, and it's also testing the Orion space capsule that will be on top of it. And this will eventually take astronauts to the moon and then to their lunar lander so they can get down to the surface. So this mission has to go right if we want astronauts on the following mission. So this is an incredibly important mission for, for the Artemis program and for NASA. And why did NASA decide to prioritize going back to the moon after being engaged in other ways for so long. What's what's the thinking at NASA? What's the real purpose of the mission? In a sense, you can say that NASA has always been thinking about Artemis since 
the 1970s when Apollo ended. It always wanted to go back to the moon. Finding the the funding for that was was rather difficult. But the the argument that the agency is making, or the, or the motivation behind this, is that the moon is a stepping stone to deep space to travel farther into our solar system than ever before. The places that humans will land for these Artemis missions, um, the third mission and beyond, is going to be at the lunar south pole. And that's important because scientists think that trapped underneath the lunar soil there are these pockets of ice or, or liquid water. And what you can do is you can actually extract that water, use that for life support, but more importantly, you can use that for rocket fuel. So the idea is that you establish a permanent base on the moon after these initial Artemis missions. They're going to have a space station in an orbit around the moon to help support those bases down below. And then you begin drilling and mining and actually creating a gas station on the moon. And when we want to go to Mars, our first stop is actually going to be at the moon to Mm -hmm. fuel up with this fuel that we've actually extracted from the surface of the moon to take us to places like Mars. So if we want to go to deep space, NASA says this is what we have to do first. Mm. And is this a new kind of space race, given that there are private corporate players now really working on space travel alongside NASA? In a sense, yes. Um, But NASA is also leveraging those commercial players. You know, in the Apollo program, NASA did use these commercial companies, but they bought the hardware from them, right? Um, In this new Artemis program, they solicited uh, other companies to design these these vehicles that will be used to go down to the surface, and they're not paying for them. They're actually paying for rides. Um, So the first company that was picked is is SpaceX. Um, So SpaceX is going to be designing the lander that will meet up with the astronauts at the moon and take them down to the surface. But NASA does not own the lander. It's kind of like if, you know, if you were to own a car or hire an Uber to take you someplace. NASA's in the Uber era. In a sense, we are in another space race against China to get down there. And so then, for people who aren't going to be lucky enough to watch this in person, where can the rest of us track the progress of Artemis One? Well, the the launch day will be uh, will be broadcast by by NASA TV, um, so you can watch that on YouTube or uh, it's uh, broadcast on a lot of uh, over the air signals. But pretty much anywhere in Florida, once this thing launches, you'll be able to see it. This is a big, powerful rocket. <laughs> so mm-hmm. just kind of look east, and, and, and you will see it. <laughs> look up, look east. Uh, Brent, look up, yeah. Brendan Byrne of WMFE, always doing such a good job of covering this space program. Thanks so much for joining us. Always a pleasure, Melissa. Thanks for having me. If the test flight is called off due to weather or other issues, NASA officials say the next window could be on Monday, September 5th, on Labor Day. Well, the Pinellas County Housing Authority has reopened its waiting list for Section 8 housing vouchers. These vouchers, meant for low-income tenants, can help cover a portion of an individual or family's monthly rent. As WMNF's McKenna Schuler reports, this is the first time in two years the agency has started accepting new applications. Section 8 vouchers are a form of public rental assistance for low-income individuals and families. They cover a portion of a tenant's rent in the private market. The goal is for those with a voucher to not have to pay more than 30 percent of their income on rent. To be eligible for a voucher, you must make at or below 50 percent of the area median income. In Pinellas County, that's $28,750 for a one-person household or just about $41,000 a year for a family of four. The waitlist for Pinellas County's Section 8 program closed in 2020. This is the first time it's reopened since. Applications will be accepted through a lottery system over the next couple days, and only 3,000 will be placed on the waitlist. In June, Margaret Jones of the Tampa Housing Authority told WMNF their biggest problem isn't giving out vouchers. It's a shortage of available, affordable units. The problem is is that investors are coming in, they're buying these single-family homes or apartment complexes, raising the rent that's just not affordable for the families, and they are left out there because they can't afford these astronomical rents. In Tampa, Jones said they're trying to get more landlords to rent to tenants who have vouchers. New laws recently passed in Tampa, St. Petersburg, and Pinellas County could help prevent landlords from discriminating against voucher holders, essentially refusing to rent to them. We're trying on our end as a housing authority to encourage more landlords to participate, 
Carla Correa is a local organizer with the St. Petersburg Tenants Union. As someone who regularly interacts with renters who are struggling to find affordable housing, she said she's glad to see the waitlist reopened. It is good that they're opening um, and they're accepting more applications, but it's just, it's not enough. Correa criticizes the reliance on finding good landlords in the private market to address the housing shortage, and she wants to see local governments step in to do more. Long term, they should be um, creating like a municipal housing authority. In the meantime, the online application portal for Section 8 vouchers in Pinellas County will be open for the next couple days. Those who are eligible based on their income can apply now online through September 1st at PinellasHousing.gov. For WMNF, I'm McKenna Schuler. And you're listening to the Florida Roundup from Florida Public Radio. Well, the race for Florida Attorney General is heating up following the primary election results. In the state, WFSU's Regan McCarthy reports Democratic nominee Aramis Ayala faces off against incumbent Ashley Moody. Aramis Ayala trounced her opponents in the Democratic primary, earning nearly 45% of the vote, compared with Jim Lewis's nearly 27% and Daniel Ufelder's approximately 28%. Now she's turning her attention to November and Republican incumbent Ashley Moody. Ayala says she thinks Moody's weaknesses lie in constitutional questions. Our right to vote, our right to privacy, um, our right to marry who we want to marry, all of the issues that impact um, Democrats and those issues, education, you know, children needing to be educated and not indoctrinated. These are the constitutional issues that I think she's extremely vulnerable, and especially me as a a pro-choice woman having a, 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 a race for attorney general against a anti-choice woman is going to definitely be heated up. In a panel hosted by the Sun Sentinel's Steve Bosquet, Ayala said she also thinks Moody shows weakness when it comes to fighting gun violence. Unfortunately for her, public safety is not gotten better on her on her watch. When we talk about public safety, it's not just mass incarceration. Public safety also includes firearms, getting the guns off the street so that we don't have to deal with these mass shootings, so we don't have to deal with fearing where we go. Ayala became Florida's first black state attorney in 2017 and soon made headlines when she announced she would not seek the death penalty in cases she prosecuted. She served a single four-year term in Orange County. Her opponent, Ashley Moody, has made her own headlines since being elected to the position in 2019. Early this month, Moody joined Governor Ron DeSantis as he announced he would suspend Tampa State Attorney Andrew Warren, who had pledged not to prosecute cases under a new Florida law that bans most abortions after 15 weeks of pregnancy. During the press announcement, Moody said ignoring laws means ignoring the will of the people. Let me tell you who makes the laws and decides what's criminal. It's you. It's the people of this state through their elected representatives. They decide what the law should be for the protection of their communities and their families. An executive cannot come in and eradicate that, do away with that, ignore that, because that's what creates instability. Moody has worked to help recruit more police officers to Florida. Her office launched the Be a Florida Hero initiative last year. She says fighting crime means giving police more support and not looking the other way when laws are broken. And when you see prosecutors out there that blame the victims or blame businesses for not having better security and not themselves for not putting criminals behind bars, When a prosecutor puts crime above law and order, you're going to have a problem. Law enforcement knows that. They deal with it every day. Moody was unchallenged during the primary and was recently endorsed by the majority of the state's sheriffs. I'm Regan McCarthy. Still to come, four members of the Broward County School Board are removed from office. That's next here on the Florida Roundup from Florida Public Radio. We'll be right back. Two candidates are vying to be Jacksonville's next sheriff. Hear them debate before you vote. T.K. Waters and Lakeisha Burton will take the stage on Thursday, September 15th in a debate hosted by Jacksonville Today and the Jacksonville Bar Association. Attend in person at WJCT Studios or stream online. 
Register at wjct.org events. The new movie Honk for Jesus, Save Your Soul, is a satirical look at organized religion, but also a love letter to faith and worship. You can, you know, love the church and love going to church, but still be very critical of it and want it to be doing better. I'm Elsa Chang. More on the debut feature film from sisters Adama and Adane Ibo this afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. Starting at 4 on WJCT News 89.9. On the next Fresh Air, interviews from our archive, with Smokey Robinson talking about writing songs like Shop Around and You Really Got a Hold on Me, and about starting Motown with Barry Gordy. Also, Isaac Hayes talking about writing Soul Man for Sam and Dave, and writing and performing the theme from Shaft. Join us. Today at 1 on WJCT News 89.9. Support for the Florida Roundup comes from ABC Fine Wine and Spirits, family-owned and operated since 1936. Guests can visit 125 stores throughout Florida or shop online at abcfws.com. Welcome back to the Florida Roundup. Thanks for being with us. I'm Melissa Ross in Jacksonville. Well, earlier this week in Broward County, Governor DeSantis removed four members of the county's school board. He cited the findings and recommendations of a statewide grand jury launched after the 2018 Parkland shooting. The governor appointed new members to the board immediately. WLRN reporter Gerard Albert III has more. This is WLRN News. I'm Gerard Albert III. Governor Ron DeSantis has removed four Broward County school board members from office. That's based on the recommendations of a grand jury, the second grand jury to investigate the Broward School Board in 10 years. Board Chair Lori Rich Levinson, Vice Chair Patricia Good, and board members Anne Murray and Donna Korn are all out, effective immediately. The grand jury found that they were negligent and incompetent in their duties and that they failed to hold district leaders accountable for fraud and mismanagement. WLRN's education reporter Kate Payne and I talked about what led to this moment and what this means for the district. While DeSantis requested the grand jury look into the 2018 Parkland shooting, the report ended up focusing more on an $800 million bond approved by voters in 2014. Kate, remind us, what did the grand jury find? Well, it found that the board and then superintendent Robert Runcie mismanaged this massive school renovation effort and that ultimately left students in decrepit, unsafe buildings for much longer uh, than they were supposed to be, and that these four board members failed to hold Runcie and district officials accountable. And what has the reaction been so far? I was able to speak with board member Lori Alhadef, who ran for the board after her daughter Alyssa was murdered at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. She and four other board members were cleared of any wrongdoing by the grand jury. And Alhadef said that removing these four members is a measure of accountability. As Alyssa's mom, it's definitely one more step in the, the healing process. And who will replace these four board members? Tori Alston, who resigned his seat on the Broward County Commission to take this appointment. Manuel Serrano, who's the CEO and founder of a financial consulting firm. Ryan Ryder, who's a Marine and the director of government relations for a construction company. And Kevin Tynan, who's an attorney and who was previously appointed to the school board by then-Governor Charlie Crist. And under state law, these appointees will serve the balance of the term of the members, which for three of them will mean until November, so not very long. Uh, but Patricia Good's term expires in 2024. And with these changes, a majority of the board is now made up of DeSantis appointees. And this is in one of the most democratically leaning counties in the state. And the board is also now majority men, when just a few months ago it was entirely women. And this is in a field, education, which is dominated by women. So the dynamics are, are definitely changing here. DeSantis's decision came just days after the school board elections, when one of these board members was on the ballot, Donna Korn. She's supposed to advance to a runoff in November. What happens to her re-election bid? 
the report itself was publicly released on August 18th, just days before the primary election. And at that point, more than 100,000 people in Broward County had already voted and weren't able to factor in the findings of this report. Corn's critics have been calling on her to suspend her campaign because of these fears of her being removed from office. And, uh, you know, Corn ultimately did win a plurality of the votes in the election, but she didn't win outright. So she is supposed to advance to a runoff in November against businessman Alan Zeman. But her removal definitely makes this all a bit more complicated. And Gerard, you, you actually spoke to a law professor at Nova Southeastern University about some of the legal specifics behind this. Uh, what did you find out? Right. I spoke with Robert Jarvis. It's his legal interpretation that because she was suspended during this term, she can still run and win the next term. For the other board members, they could appeal to the state Senate and have a hearing, but it likely wouldn't happen in time for the November election, and and the Senate would likely not overturn the suspension. WLRN education reporter Kate Payne, thanks for talking through this. Thank you. I'm Gerard Albert III, and this is WLRN News. The Republican Majority Board elected Tori Alston to the position of chair, with the longer-standing board members failing to elect Lori Alida for that role. She was elected vice chair. Well, in Surfside, Florida, the judge overseeing the Champlain Towers South litigation on Monday awarded the law firms that represented the victims much less than what they asked for. WLRN's Veronica Zaragovia has that story. Attorneys representing families of the 98 victims had asked for more than $100 million. That included a multiplier. In Florida law, a court may multiply the hourly rate depending on factors like how tough the case was. The fees are coming out of our awards for pain and suffering. I do not believe that a 4.5 time multiplier is appropriate here. Tali Nybrif's brother, Ilan, died in the disaster. She told the judge $100 million was too much. The judge decided they'll get about $70 million. Attorney Stuart Grossman told reporters that thousands of hours went into this case. He did initially agree to work for free. I grew up here, and I've loved this place. It's been very, very good to me and my partners. And I thought, just do it. It's the right thing to do. Grossman will be paid an amount that hasn't been determined yet. I'm Veronica Saragovia in Miami. You're listening to the Florida Roundup from Florida Public Radio. Well, the races for Tallahassee mayor and three Leon County Commission seats are still wide open after the primary election. As WFSU's Margie Menzel reports, for those candidates no longer in the running, the question may be whether to run again. First-time candidate Donna Pearl Cotterell has been a teacher, founder of a nonprofit, and a member of the Citizens Police Review Board. She ran against County Commissioner Bill Proctor. No easy task, as Proctor has been in office since 1995. He was re-elected outright with almost 58% of the vote, but she says she wasn't unhappy with her first run. I am brand new to politics. I actually didn't even think about a serious bid until the end of May. And so considering how late I jumped in the race, I'm pleased with the number of votes I got. I mean, I got about 18% of the votes. So, thank you. That's, that's a win. I'm going to take that as a win. And if she runs again, she knows at least one of her talking points. I'm hoping that the ideas that I brought forth during the campaign, especially the arts, where I'm so passionate about it, that we do invest more in our District 1 neighborhoods, uh, bringing the arts to our children. That will help reduce our crime rate, for sure. Edna Marcelin worked for years with civil rights attorney Ben Crump and served as president of the Tallahassee NAACP. Then he ran against Tallahassee City Commissioner Diane Williams-Cox, who was re-elected outright with 52% of the vote over Marcelin and Shelby Green. But Marcelin could see himself running again. Getting to meet the different sections of our community, spending time with many of our neighbors, and just amassing uh, this amount of support for our first run uh, was very rewarding, and uh, I had fun doing it. I don't see an issue with doing that, and I wouldn't rule it out in the future again. 
First-time candidate David Bellamy is an orthopedic surgeon and part-time police officer. He lost to city commissioner Jeremy Matlow in a bruising contest, despite raising more money than anyone else in the election cycle. He says it was a positive experience, but at this point, he's not inclined to run again. I, I wouldn't want to have to go through the fundraising again. The rest really was uh, fairly enjoyable. It's been a long time since Marjorie Turnbull first raised money to run for office. She served two at-large terms as a Leon County Commissioner starting in 1988, followed by three terms in the Florida House of Representatives. Before running for anything, she was president of the Council of Neighborhood Associations and usually attended city and county commission meetings on behalf of the council. And out of that, if elective office comes or you get asked to run for office, then you understand why you're doing it. You're doing it for really a higher purpose. You're doing it to make sure that people have the things they need to make their lives better. Turnbull raised about $18,000 in her first run for office. She says the electorate must be very careful about the role of money in politics. Fewer and fewer really good people are going to take the jump to run for office because raising money is not easy. And if what you're wanting to do is to connect with the electorate, connect with the voter, and yet you're spending most of your time raising money, you're missing a great deal in terms of why you're running in the first place. The most important thing, she says, is running for the right reasons. You shouldn't start out with the idea you're going to run for elective office. You should start with, what can I do for my community? How can I get involved with my community? Learn your community. Understand your community. Love your community. Adner Marcelin and David Bellamy ended on that note as well. It really comes down to the values of our community. Um, That is something that I believe in. That is something that I will stand firm in. And uh, I have no regrets. I would have done it again. Meeting lots of people that I wouldn't have otherwise met that are wonderful folks. Uh, as much as I thought of it, I knew about the city, I learned even more. It, it was just a good experience overall, something I always wanted to do, so I'm very glad I did it. For potential candidates, we have information about how to run for office at WFSU.org. That was Margie Menzel of WFSU. And that's our show for today. The Florida Roundup is produced by WJCT Public Media in Jacksonville and WLRN Public Media in Miami. Heather Schatz and Natu Tway are producers. Catherine Hobbs is our associate producer. Peter Mayers is WLRN's director of radio operations and our technical director. With engineering help from Doug Peterson, Charles Michaels, and Isabella De Silva. Richard Ives answers the phones. Theme music by Miami jazz guitarist Aaron Lebos. I'm Melissa Ross. Have a safe and happy Labor Day weekend. We'll be right back here next Friday at noon. Support for the Florida Roundup comes from ABC Fine Wine and Spirits, family-owned and operated since 1936. Guests can shop any of ABC's 125 Florida stores and get curbside service through abcfws.com.